Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying the show, you can subscribe at theconsumervc.substack.com, where episodes, my own takes, and upcoming events will be delivered straight to your inbox. If you could also leave a review on the Apple Podcast app of the show, that would also be terrific. Thank you, Samara Hernandez, for the intro to my guest today, Monique Woodard. Monique is the founding partner of Cake Ventures. Cake invests in companies that address the needs of a world undergoing massive demographic changes. We break down the three layers of cake, or themes, that Monique focuses on how she thinks about geography and future of work and her learnings as an operator and from 500 startups. Without further ado, here's Monique. Monique, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. Thanks so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I wanted to start from the very beginning. What was your initial attraction to technology and innovation? Wow, that that means I have to like go back in the dark recesses of my mind <laughs> um, because I've been in and around startups and technology basically most of my adult career. And I would say that I really came at it from a standpoint of liking to build things on the internet. And, you know, when I started um, such that, you know, it was just people building things that they thought were cool. And I got really into that and, you know, figuring out how to make those things grow. And I got really into that. And that really kind of set my interest off that you could build something and then have thousands of people coming to your website and using your product, you know, in a, in a matter of days. No, absolutely. And I appreciate you sharing that story. And, and I love that. What was maybe some of the reasons what led you, your career to San Francisco? So I grew up in Florida in a small, very rural town where you would not expect anyone to end up in venture capital. Uh, and I went to school in Miami and I was sort of like, you know, building things on- online and, you know, building product and, you know, doing a lot of affiliate marketing and things like that. And ultimately someone in the, a company in the Bay Area knew of me, reached out through a friend and asked me to come talk to them about a video platform they were building. And I had never been to San Francisco. I had never even thought of San Francisco as a place where I might end up. And I came for 36 hours and I moved 30 days later. And that was really kind of pivotal for my career for sure. I just found myself around people who were doing similar things and, you know, were really into technology and were building things that I was excited about. And, um, you know, I, I couldn't have ended up in a better place at the time. That's great. Was it helpful being around having that kind of ecosystem that you have in San Francisco versus, you know, being in Florida where you maybe have more of a dispersed or ecosystem? Was that kind of helpful as well when it came to building products online? Back then it was. I mean, I moved to San Francisco in 2008. And, you know, I know that now Miami is having this amazing boom of um, venture capitalists going down there and founders moving there. But that just wasn't the case back in, you know, 08 and, you know, even before that when I was there. And so 
I think by me coming to the Bay Area, it just sort of put me into the middle of the place where everyone was going to build, you know, the next Uber or the next Airbnb or whatever, or not even next Air- Uber and Airbnb. It was like the Uber and Airbnb. <laughs> <laughs> the Uber and Airbnb. Right, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was building the Uber and Airbnb. Um, so I just felt like I was now in the right place at the right time. And you know, I was now going to all of these like meetups and going to all of these demo days. And the thing that I would say is that the community at the time wasn't particularly diverse. And so because of that, a lot of us ended up building our own communities within the community. And so, but I think that without being here, it would have been hard to even do that. What were some of the strategies that you did or or how were you able to build like a community within a community? in San Francisco. I'd love to kind of learn to just on the community building front. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, it was sort of accidental almost. I mean, my friends and I got together and we were sort of having dinner one night and we were sort of talking about the fact that we didn't see a lot of Black entrepreneurs, Black founders at a lot of these like demo days or a lot of these tech events. And we were just like, oh, well, why don't we just build a community for ourselves? And we had a happy hour. We scheduled a happy hour like a month later. And we invited the people that we knew and were incredibly surprised that a lot of people showed up, uh, pleasantly surprised. And then we just kept doing it. And we kept, we kept, you know, building that community for ourselves. So we were like scratching our own itch in that way that we were, you know, bringing people together who we knew were building interesting companies or building interesting products. And, you know, we wanted to just be closer to those people. No, that makes sense. And we do talk a little bit about diversity venture capital on this show and how I remember I'm just thinking of my conversation with Soraya Darabi, how she said that if you really want true diversity, it should come from the top down in terms of you actually have capital allocators and those that, that actually manage pension funds or, or fund of funds that actually invest in VCs that come from different backgrounds. As we move forward here, how do you think about how to make or what could accelerate diversity within venture capital and as well as investing in founders that might come from not the traditional path per se, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean... I would definitely say that there's a, a bigger need for, you know, large institutional investors to start investing in emerging fund managers, one, and emerging fund managers of color, two, and, and emerging fund managers who are women. And so I think, you know, the pension funds and large endowments that end up in a lot of these large venture capital firms are not at scale investing in emerging managers, especially emerging managers who are diverse, right? Who are women, who are people of color. And I think until they are, it's really difficult for the industry to see any movement around diversity in venture capital, diversity in the fund manager set, and diversity, ultimately a diversity in the entrepreneur arena. So I think we've seen a few small steps toward, you know, LPs, limited partners who invest in funds, investing in fund managers of color. But when it comes to the larger institutional LPs, we haven't seen as much as I think we should. And I think that's a huge missed opportunity. I mean, look, you know, if you're a teacher investing into the pension that you have, odds are high that you might be a person of color or you might be a woman. And to not have that money going into funds that will actually invest in people who look like you or who look like your kids or who look like, you know, 
the people that you actually know is an absolute travesty. And I think it's a mismanagement, it's a misallocation of dollars. When you look at who actually drives those pension dollars, you're not getting the same output on the other side into fund managers of color or or people of color who are starting companies. I think that's a really good point because I've heard a lot of conversation about democratizing who can invest in capital and maybe changing the rules of what a accredited investor is. But to your point, what's interesting is you actually look at it on the pension funds and who's actually contributing to those pension funds and actually thinking about diversity in that aspect, which I think is also just an interesting way to look at it, right? Where your actual dollars are going towards. Yeah, for sure. I mean, police officers, teachers, you know, fire and rescue professionals, they all pay into a pension. And often those people are people of color. And so, you know, it's kind of a travesty that if they, you know, they're paying into a pension that is going to a fund that has zero black entrepreneurs in their portfolio or zero Latino entrepreneurs in their portfolio or zero women, you know what I mean? And so I think, I think that's an issue that needs to be pressed on a lot more. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I really appreciate you sharing from that perspective because I didn't think about it like that before as well. So that's really, really fascinating because, of course, you know, the teachers, the police officers, they obviously don't have a share, have a say in terms of how their capital gets allocated. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you were building products for a long time. And why did you decide that you wanted to make the switch or become an investor? So I was building products and then we started this community of founders, black founders, and I was meeting so many really interesting entrepreneurs. And, you know, I would introduce them to the investors that I knew, or I would, you know, talk to them about their companies and advise them on on the early stages of their companies. And I just really loved it so much. And I realized that I was doing a lot of the work of a VC without actually like officially being on the investor side of the table or having the checkbook behind me to like invest in these companies. And I was like, okay, I have to figure out how to get onto the other side of the table because this is a really inefficient way of doing what I want to do. And so I started trying to make my way onto the investor side of the table. And I was writing people cold emails and I was asking people if I could be their EIR. And I, you know, was just trying to find my way in um, by any means necessary. And ultimately, I knew folks at 500 startups. And um, that's how I made my entry point into venture. That's awesome. That's awesome. How has your experience at 500 startups maybe helped shape you and of course, you know, founding cake and maybe in terms of strategy, in terms of writing small bets in a lot of companies, as opposed to maybe a concentrated portfolio. So I'd love just to kind of hear your thoughts around that. Yeah, I think the great thing that being at 500 startups taught me was the ability to see a lot of companies over, you know, a period of time, right? Because 500 startups definitely believes in, you know, investing in in a lot of companies. They have a, a portfolio strategy that, you know, points to that. And, you know, the ability to be able to like see and evaluate at that volume was really helpful in, in my first role in venture because being able to see that many companies, you're able to figure out what questions to ask. You're able to 
sort of benchmark against the many other companies you just saw. And, you know, you really have to sort of hone your skills really quickly. So I think, you know, that gave me an education that I think a lot of other places would not have. So I'm super grateful to 500 for that. Cake Ventures is a more concentrated portfolio, but there are definitely strategies around looking at companies early and being able to identify talent, founder talent early that I'm definitely taking with me into into Cape Ventures. No, that's great. I had a talk with Sarah from Maven Ventures and she said how, because they're also take more of a concentrated approach. And so we discussed a little bit about just different portfolio construction and strategies when it comes to concentrated versus a bit more of a quote unquote spray and pray approach that maybe 500 does. I definitely think, you know, thinking being able to, especially at Seed, which is where Cake Ventures plays and it's also where Maven um, plays, but being able to, take a more concentrated approach and hopefully get more ownership as well as, you know, I found that I really wanted to spend more time with founders and wanted to kind of double down on just helping them more than having that high volume would would allow. And so I think that, so I sort of adjusted the approach to like my needs as a, as a individual investor, as well as what I think the founders need who I'm investing in. So I think there's a time and a place for, for both strategies, but you know, solo GP, so you can't do a hundred deals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, that Maybe makes not be doing a hundred deals. <laughs> <laughs> so, talk to me about you know, I guess the formation of Cake. I know you said you're at Seed, and we talked a little bit about how you think about portfolio construction with a concentrated portfolio. Do you typically lead rounds and take a board seat? And maybe what are some of the ways as well? that you're able to really help founders that you invest in? Yeah, so Cake focuses on seed investments. So looking at seed stage and, you know, of course, there most of our deals are in true seed companies, but there is some allocation, some focus on on earlier pre-seed companies as well. And, you know, we, we play well with others. We don't have to lead. Um, <laughs> nice way to say it. <laughs> <laughs> we we don't have to have super sharp elbows, um, and our, our check size is one that you know I think can be really collaborative. Um, average check size is roughly half a million dollars, and I don't always take board seats. There will be some some occasions where I will take board seats, mostly into true seed stage companies where I think. Like I have specific expertise or a specific thing to deliver to those to that company, right? I don't anticipate taking any board seats at pre-seed. I'd rather wait until the companies get a little bit more mature. And yeah, so the focus for Cake is really around areas of demographic change that I think are changing technology. Um, I think, you know, for the record, these demographic changes are going to change every single company, especially in consumer. But, you know, there will certainly be changes that demographic change bring about in B2B as well. So super excited to, to lean into that for for a lot of these seed investments. No, that's great. That's great. Thanks so much for, for sharing. What are some current themes that you're focused on investing in? So uh, Cake is built on three big layers of demographic change that are changing technology. And, and these are really changes to the internet user base, right? So the first one is, uh, you know, the 10,000 people turning 65 every single day. 
this massive market around aging that for a very long time went underinvested and underinnovated. And now we are just starting to see more innovation coming to coming to the table that speak to the needs of an aging population. I think so many people have been focused on, you know, the needs of younger generations. You can talk about millennials, you can talk about Gen Z, but when you look at how much money our aging demographic has, I mean, $3.2 trillion in spending power, right? That's huge and shouldn't be ignored. So it's everything from helping people age in place to manage retirement benefits to have you create, create a will or a trust in a more technologically savvy fashion. Or even, you know, one of the things I've been thinking about lately is what is the future of work for someone who's 55 and does not expect to leave the workforce in 10 years at the normal age of, of retirement, right? Wants to stay in the game, so to speak, and can do that because we are such a knowledge worker driven society now. So that's the first layer of the cake. The second layer of the cake is companies that can get to billion dollar outcomes based on the economic activity of women. So women as the primary user base driving a lot of companies to unicorn status. I mean, we can look at the recent Bumble IPO and point to like that huge data point as as something that will continue, right? But we've also got I mean, Peloton's a great example as well in the public market. And there are lots of private market examples too. There's Glossier, there's uh, Modern Fertility and Kind Body and Chief, who I think will ultimately get to that billion dollar mark. But there's a lot of opportunity that I think is being missed because I think most VCs don't understand how strong um, the dollars of men are. And then the third layer and final layer of the cake is the rise of a new majority where people of color become the majority in the United States and already make up a global majority if you're building global company. And I say people of color as a broad group, but I mean, I really mean primarily Latino, African-American, and Asian populations. And so a lot of people talk about the influence of, of Gen Z and young, even younger generations like Gen Alpha and how those generations will, will impact technology. But the thing that they're failing to say is that these are inherently diverse generations already. Um, you look at the influence of Black culture on platforms like TikTok and now Clubhouse, and you can see that these cultural groups are really driving activity on tech platforms today. And so I think that that's a massive opportunity that isn't being tapped quite enough. No, and thanks so much for breaking it down like that in terms of three layers of the cake. That's fascinating. I mean, on the on, on the third side, yeah, I mean, in terms of companies that are serving underserved communities, underserved cultures, like 100%, what comes to mind is I had Beatrice, who's the founder of Suma Wealth on the show, and she's targeting like the Latinx Gen Z and millennial group for really learning and understanding personal finance. And the growth rate of that, of Latinx is quite remarkable. And so just looking at uh, those different kind of case studies about different populations or, or part of the U.S. I think that it's all really, really cool. And yeah, and I and I completely agree with you in terms of the older generation and how I think there's a lot of excitement and buzz about the next what the next social network is going to be, right? And usually, how it's social networks, it's usually the youth that drives it. But in terms of the real spending power, you know, in terms of you know who has the money, quite frankly, it's typically you know folks that are already established that already you know have a career in terms of older. Folks. So that's that. That's yeah. really cool. Everybody gets old. So I mean, <laughs> we will all get old. You know, if we're lucky. Totally, <laughs> totally. Unfortunately, you just can't escape uh, Father Time, right? <laughs> 
So has COVID changed how you source or how you look at companies? Like before, were you primarily looking companies in San Francisco and, and maybe, you know, LA, New York, or some of the bigger tech ecosystems? And has that kind of changed? Or were you always, has, has COVID really not disrupted your workflow or, or how you source deals? So I, I think as an investor, I, I definitely have been known to be on planes a lot more um, right, than, than average. Um, and so, yeah, I would certainly be in like lots of the tech hubs like New York and LA. But then there were also times when I'd be in places like Atlanta or Albuquerque or New Orleans, right? So going to like a lot of those, you know, what some people would think of as like secondary cities, but I think they're emerging tech hubs in, of their own. Um, I think what's changed is, well, one, I'm, I'm not flying to see anyone these days. <laughs> I'm not actually leaving my apartment, <laughs> but I'm still able to, I'm, I'm able to meet a lot more people from a lot more, a wider variety of places. And I'm always so interested to just know where people are zooming from, right? One of the questions I ask is, oh, where are you calling from today? Not because I care whether they're like, down the street in Palo Alto or, you know, in, in, the, in San Francisco, but I'm just so curious about how deeply, um, you know, the pandemic and COVID have both allowed us to sort of stretch our networks into other places where you might not anticipate being able to meet a founder one-on-one. Like if, if a founder was in Palm Springs or the founder was in, you know, Kansas City, I might not necessarily go meet with them face be able to meet with them face to face for a month or two or whatever or never but now it doesn't even matter <laughs> you just send, send each other a zoom link and you're you're in my living room you know and i think that is really democratized i hope it's democratized access to capital for people who are not in you know the tech hubs where where vcs typically go right and that it's been able to sort of disperse opportunity to many other places, create many other tech hubs that otherwise wouldn't be there. Yeah, I mean, and I think even prior to COVID, it's funny because it's not contradictory, but there's a balance, right? Where you understand why a company wants to live or be near San Francisco or LA or New York or some of the other incredible you know, tech hubs in the country. Um, but at the same time, usually these tech hubs, the cost of living, especially in, in you know San Francisco are so high, but of course you also need to be around the talent, right? And so how do you think about talent and, and building? You know, I had on Charles Hudson, I think he came on actually prior to the pandemic, right before the pandemic, but how he thought about talent was it's okay. And I don't want to misquote him, but it's okay if you start, a, like he understands if you start a company, maybe a secondary market, but when it comes to actually scaling and building the business, there has to be maybe a strategy in order to move to a technology like hub, if that makes sense, just to in terms of recruitment for talent. Has that changed now because of COVID? I don't typically disagree with Charles Hudson, but I think in this case, I might disagree, but, you know, with the caveat that that was pre-pandemic. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It was prior to COVID. So I don't, I don't want to, and I, I want to make sure that I'm not misrepresenting him. But anyway. I'm joking. So I think here's what I think talent wants now. Right now, I think talent wants flexibility and that's the flexibility to be wherever they want to be or wherever they need to be, whether that's, you know, somewhere in, Montana or 
they want to be in LA. And I think they want the ability to be able to do their jobs and have that kind of flexibility no matter what. Now, do I think companies will end up coming back to cities like San Francisco or you know other large tech hubs? Sure, I think there will be, will be the opportunity for people to you know go back into the office and want to be in a, have an office in downtown San Francisco. But I think that people will not always want to be in that office and want the flexibility to to roam a little bit. And we've proven that we can be efficient, we can build things, we can execute from any almost anywhere. I think that's here to stay. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I guess what's tough is when it comes to flexibility, if there are, you know, people in product, people, you know, software engineers and or just, you know, on the recruiting side that actually do much better or or much prefer to actually the in office activity and wants to maybe stay in San Francisco, then maybe that might get the challenge in there. But I do agree with you in terms of uh, flexibility, at least from these conversations that I've been having on the show, it seems like a lot more folks want flexibility. So that's great. I would say what's one thing that you would change regarding venture capital? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Can I pick just one? (laughs) (laughs) You can list a couple. That's fine. I mean, I think the obvious thing to change is, you know, the homogeneity that venture capital still has, right? And, you know, I talked to so many other VCs who will often be talking about a deal and they'll say something like, oh, I invested in X because I saw my kids doing Y or I invested in X because, you know, when I was growing up, you know, my parents did this. I think having many more different experiences, diverse experiences on the investor side of the table can only be helpful for getting more companies and more innovation into the world. Because as smart as, you know, many of the VCs that I know are, I think that often we can only invest from the lens that we have on the world. And so in order to be more innovative and to support many more different types of founders and see many more different types of problems solved in the world through technology, we have to get as many people with different experiences on the investor side of the table as possible. So I think the homogeneity of the venture capital world, you know, and having VCs only come from a handful of schools and have only a largely white and male and of a certain age, I think that that is actually hindering our ability to innovate. I completely agree with you. And I wanted to know just on that example of, oh, hey, I invest in this company because my kids you know, liked it. When you're not the target consumer, right? Because I think as your example, you want to know, you want some relationship towards the company, whether it's maybe, okay, my kids use it, then maybe this is something, this could be a thing, right? But that's not even, that's not really great market research, right? On any front, it's pretty actually terrible market research. What are maybe some examples or suggestions that maybe you've incorporated or maybe tried to say like to VCs to make it more diverse, like maybe some examples of, of conducting market research to really understand and really to say, hey, I might not be the target audience for this, but could this actually be serving to a, you know, a community or different people that might enjoy this product, but I might not. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, for sure. I mean, Deshaun Amara from the founder of Maven has this great story that he tells all the time about, you know, having to take 
investors and he was raising, you know, his first capital for Maven, which is a hair extensions company, having to take them to like the downtown Oakland place shop where you buy, where women buy hair extensions and show them how inefficient that and often terrible an experience that is. Like the hair is like behind the counter, they buzz you in. It's it's not a great user experience. And to show, he had to take, you know, these investors whose wives don't have hair extensions probably, right? He had to take them to these shops and show them how hair extensions are purchased by the end user. That's a really good example of like a fundamental flaw in being able to, to see a huge market opportunity. And I'm sure some of these, these investors also just still didn't get it. I know for a fact, many of them still don't get it, right? They still don't understand how big that market for black hair care or other categories are. You know, one of the things that is so annoying that I have heard, you know, VCs say is, oh, I'll go ask my wife. Well, your wife isn't necessarily the target market for this product. And, you know, I I think that the more diversity that you have on your team, the better you're able to evaluate companies. But you also have to be able to understand and re- really want to do the work to do research into other categories that are not directly reflective of you or of the people that you may even know. And so being able to talk to customers and, you know, and dig into the data, even when there is very little data, you know, public data to be had, like you have to do work. And sometimes investors don't always want to do work, (laughs) right? Like if there are three deals and one of them requires them to do work, maybe they'll just choose one of the other two. (laughs) Even though there is a big market opportunity sitting right in front of them. So I mean, I'm happy to take those deals that they missed, though. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's a really great example. And I appreciate you bringing up the hair extension piece. I talked to, it reminds me a little bit as well. I had on Alex Fine, who founded Dame Products, and, and they do women's vibrators. And how she was talking about how, you know, a lot of men just that were looking at the company just didn't get it. Right. And so I also just think in terms of investor wise, like if it is very homogeneous, right, and it's very white male dominant, probably then a lot of the products that are coming out are serving the white male or maybe like white female, you know, demographics. If it's, you know, on your, oh, well, my wife won't buy it, that type of thing. When really then the real opportunity is then serving you know, non-white underserved communities. Those are actually the big opportunities and actually where you could actually see probably a lot of venture returns too financially, you know, as well as helping different communities. So I don't know. I think it's, I think it's really fascinating. Yeah. I mean, for so long, we've been investing in, in companies that, you know, speak to the needs of like the white male engineer who works at Facebook or Google. Right. And that is not most of America. Like most of America are, it's the truck driver, right? It's the blue collar worker. It's the mom in Idaho, right? And so one of the things that I like to think about is that old radio adage of does it play in Peoria, right? Like when they were breaking a record back in the old days, they would listen to something and they would be like, does this play in Peoria? Do the, does middle America want to listen to this? And that's what I think about when I'm looking at companies. Is this something that middle America needs? Does the average person who is not making $200,000 a year, who is not living in San Francisco, is this a product that speaks to them? And when it's not, I'm, I'm much less interested in that. I'm much more interested in 
for lack of a better phrase, real people, the products that real people need and, and want and the ways that we can use technology to make their lives better. Totally. I totally agree with you there. Do you have any advice in terms of maybe market research that you might do when you're analyzing these companies to really identify, first of all, if it's a real pain point, right? And is it for you know, quote unquote, like the 99%, if that makes sense, not just like the 1%. So is there some like examples that you might do in terms of Julie to find out how, how big of a pain point it could be? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that is sort of core to Cake Ventures is, is insights and trying to really understand what are the new market opportunities within these layers of the cake? And so, um, you know, last year I released a white paper, a report called Gray New World, which is all about aging and where where the opportunities are. And, you know, we collected data. We did our own data collection of people who were over 55 and talked to them about the things that they use technology for, the things that they would like to use technology for, the things that they don't want to use technology for sort of debunking a lot of the myths around the the myth that people, older people do not want technology or technologically unsavvy. And so those are the sorts of things that I do on a regular basis when I'm either evaluating a deal or thinking about, you know, the market broadly. You know, I think that there are lots of opportunities that we're missing when it comes to, um, you know, the second layer of the cake, women. Certainly the third layer of the cake is, is definitely underexplored. But I think that, I think that for the second layer of the cake, for women in particular, we sort of, we sort of gotten stuck at FemTech, right? Which is periods, menopause, all of those bodily things. And I think that there's this massive opportunity to go beyond the body, really dig into the ways that women, you know, save, spend, invest money differently. And, you know, the same for the new majority. So market research or expanding our understanding of what the market actually is, is a core thesis point at Cake Ventures. Expanding the understanding of what a market really is. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I appreciate you sharing. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? Ooh, okay. Inspired me. This is hard. I feel, I feel like... People find this question the hardest. <laughs> Good. So one book that has inspired me professionally is this book called The Tycoons. It's really about the old school so-called robber barons and the rise of like J.P. Morgan and John D. Rockefeller and it's just sort of this fascinating look at, you know, the United States on the cusp of, you know, a economic revolution and, and the people who, who drove that. I find it really inspiring because in their day, these people were just entrepreneurs, right? They weren't elevated to the level of like what we think of John D. Rockefeller as today. And, you know, if you care about entrepreneurs and, and, you know, are a fan of entrepreneurship, I think it's incredibly inspiring. That's great. That's great. I'm really excited because no one has mentioned this book on our book list. So excited to add it. You're very original, Monique. <laughs> There's also a great history channel series, docu-series called Men Who Built America. Oh. Um, unfortunately, it's only men. Um, but it is very similar in that it sort of gives you the backstory on a lot of like the John D. Rockefellers, the J.P. Morgans of the world and how they came to be. Right. I appreciate Osho sharing that. We'll certainly add it to the page. That'd be great to also uh, check out. What's the best, no pressure here, but what's the best piece of advice that you've received? 
I think there are two actually. So my dad used to always say this phrase, scared money won't make none. So like, it just means like being overly cautious and overly conservative and not willing to take big risks will not make you any money. And my dad was an entrepreneur, a small business entrepreneur, and he ran a fish market when I was growing up. And he was also, we, as I mentioned, I grew up in a rural town, so he was also a farmer. But, you know, my family is very entrepreneurial from a small business standpoint. And then the other thing that, and I don't remember who told me this, so I can't credit anyone with it, but is that people will underestimate you and you can use that to your advantage. So it, it sucks to be underestimated in some cases, but if you're smart, you'll use it to your advantage and they'll never see you coming. I love both of those. I've just written both of them down. I uh, I really like both those. Scared money won't make none. I certainly understand your attraction with that quote to to entrepreneurship, as well as investing in, in you know, maybe the most, uh, and venture since it's the riskiest asset class. Uh, so very much understand your attraction there. And I love that as well. People will underestimate you and you can use that to your advantage. I think that's another really good point. So my final question to you is for founders who are currently building, what's your one piece of advice for those folks? Talk to customers, ignore press. Talk to customers, ignore press, good or bad. Like you have to get to the point where you have blinders on around the hype machine because you can't start to believe your own hype. The only hype that matters is the hype of your customers. And they show that by how often they're using your product or how much money they want to spend to to have what you are selling. You know, the hype of press and external accolades do not matter at all. I love that. I love that. Really just care about your customers and ignore ignore press and what other people are saying. Really, really look at your customers who are actually purchasing the product and, and giving you feedback, whether that's good feedback or bad feedback, but see then how you can maybe, you know, work on the product or what have you in terms of to serve those customers better. I love that advice. That's really great advice. And again, no one has given that advice either on the show. So again, Monique, very original here. Very original. Monique, this has been so much fun. Thanks so much for your time. This is fun. Um, I could talk to you all day. You've made it easy. <laughs> and there you have it. It was terrific chatting with Monique. I highly recommend following her on Twitter at Monique Woodard. You're also welcome to follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks. Mm-hmm.